let's pray together as we go to the word. Our Father in heaven, what an astounding statement to be made that Jesus Christ is our living hope. It's packed and pregnant with so much truth and so much meaning. As Carolyn prayed this morning for those who are suffering with illness or financial distress or emotional breakdown or relational strife, the fact that Jesus Christ is our living hope propels us to go on from day to day. For as soon as we lose hope, we're done. But thank you that you have gone before us to give us a hope, an anchor that we can hold on to. So open our eyes this morning, Father, as we open your word and help us not only to grab onto that living hope for ourselves, but if we have it, may we be willing to share it with others and point people to the resurrection power that is in a faith relationship with Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that I pray and everyone said, amen, amen. Amen. In October of 1993, in the town of Worcester, Massachusetts, police discovered an old woman dead on her kitchen floor. Now, this was no ordinary discovery. She had been dead for four years, not days, not hours, four years. Police speculated she died at age 73 of natural causes. That's when her bank transactions ended. How can someone be so cut off from relationships that no one even notices whether you live or die? To some extent, it was a mistake. According to the Associated Press, four years earlier, neighbors had called authorities when they sensed something might be wrong. And when the police contacted the woman's brother, he said she had gone into a nursing home. Police told the Postal Service to stop delivering the mail then. One neighbor paid her grandson to cut the grass because the place was starting to look run down. Another neighbor had the utility company come and shut off the water when a pipe froze, broke, and sent water spilling out the door. To a great extent, however, it was not a mistake. One friend from the past said, quote, she didn't want anyone bothering her at all. And I guess she got her wish, but it's awfully sad. Her brother said the family hadn't been close since their mother died in 1979. He added, someone should have noticed something before now, though. The woman had lived in her house in this middle-class neighborhood for 40 years, but none of her neighbors knew her well. My heart bleeds for her, said the woman who lives across the street, but you can't blame a soul. If she saw you out there, she never said hello to you. As this neighborhood shows, a spirit of community only results when all of us Reach out to relate to one another. Relationships take effort. Did you catch that? Relationships take effort. There are over 50 occasions in the New Testament, depending on who's counting, where the phrase one another is used. Usually it's prefaced by a responsibility that we have toward others within the body of Christ. For example, love one another, admonish one another, be at peace with one another, pray for one another, honor one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Not a single one of those exhortations is given with a negative outcome in mind. Look them up. We are to make an effort to develop healthy, growing, right relationships with each other in the church, to build each other up, to bring each other through. That's what being in the body is all about, the scripture says. 
And I got to tell you, if you are not the least bit interested in making an effort to develop right relationships with people, then I'm going to be right blunt with you right now. You need to go home, kneel down in the privacy of your own prayer closet, honestly ask yourself and your father in heaven, why am I part of this church, your church anyway? Why? Because the church, my friends, is not a club. It's not a business. It's, it's not a place where you get to be a part of an exclusive group of beautiful, wonderful, perfect people who have it all together. <laughs> the church is a family. And every family that I know of has things that must be worked out and worked through. Amen? There are hard, painful times to endure, fun, wonderful days to enjoy, deep personal needs to be met. At any given point in a family's existence, the question is, are you and I willing to fulfill our responsibilities in this family? Do you even understand what those responsibilities are? Well, I think it's high time we all did. So if you are not doing it already, or if you're new to the faith, I think it's time to realize that, it, that as the time of Christ's return approaches, we can't afford to sit around whining, holding grudges, building walls, getting revenge, and spiritually shutting down. We need each other, don't we? And our love for Christ ought to propel us to take care of each other. Years ago, I preached a short mini-series on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 22, entitled Real Responsibilities for Right Relationships in the Church. Well, recently, I've been thinking that it may be time to revisit that again. What Paul has to say there is important for all of us to hear, especially in light of the current trend in our culture, to pretty much abandon the church as a gathered community, or at least view it as optional in light of our busy schedules. I'm going to give you a sneak preview on something now, because somebody shared it with me this week, Pastor Chris did, is that Francis Chan is coming out with a new book on September 1st. So you can pre-order it if you want to, but it's called Letters to the Church. And it hit me as soon as I read the first chapter. We live in a time, he says, when people go to a building on Sunday mornings, attend an hour-long service, and call themselves members of the church. Does that sound shocking to you? Of course not. This is perfectly normal. It's what we grew up with. We all know good Christians go to church. But have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that is even remotely close to the pattern that we have created? Do you find anyone who went to church? Try to imagine Paul and Peter speaking like we do today. Here's an example. Hey, Peter, where do you go to church now? Oh, I go to the river they have great music, and I love the kids' program. Cool. Can I check it out? Can I check out your church next Sunday? I'm not getting much out of mine. Totally. I'm not going to be there next Sunday, though, because little Matthew has soccer. But how about the week after? Sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles group? Now, this is Peter and Paul talking now, right? They have a singles group? Well, it's comical to think of Paul and Peter speaking like this, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Yet that's the normal conversation of Christians today, isn't it? That's right. Why is that the case? There are so many things wrong with the above conversation, Chan says, that I don't even know where to start. The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of the church to a one-hour service that we attend is staggering, staggering. He says, what I see today is many people choosing to opt out of the church. Now, if that's church, yeah, maybe you should opt out of it. But claiming a continued love for Jesus, they have decided that the church only gets in their way. It's a sad time when those who want to be close to Jesus have given up on the church, isn't it? 
We shouldn't be. It's not the answer. Something that God has designed to function as a family has been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And this has become normal for a lot of people. Now, I'm not saying that it's become normal for all of you. Maybe for some of you. Certainly not for me. But it's become the norm for people. Expected. How in the world did we get here? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, would you? And we're going to look at over the next three weeks after this one, verses 12 to 22. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 22. Very short passage, very staccato in the way that Paul writes. And you're going to realize that in Thessalonica, Paul only really spent like a month of Sundays there, but he gave them all this theology in the short time that he was with them. Theology about a lot of things, about end times, about the way you're supposed to relate with one another, how the church should function as a family. And here it is right here, verses 12 to 22. Follow along with me as I read, 1 Thessalonians 5. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. That you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Now if that's all you had to go on, do you think the church could thrive? Absolutely. It absolutely could. So that's why I want to revisit this text and lay it out to see where we measure up. Because as I read through this text, I'm convicted. And I quickly realized that it's extremely easy for all of us to not only forget, but also to forego our responsibility to mutually care for one another. It's easier, isn't it, just in this self-sufficient and independent culture of ours to just leave people alone and expect people to leave you alone. To not get involved in people's lives. To convince ourselves that if we just turn the other way, things will somehow work out. Well, let me give you a simple penetrating truth that I have, have to keep learning myself over and over and over again. They won't just work out. They don't get better. Because my brothers and sisters, one of the beautiful things about being part of Christ's body, the church, is that what happens to you matters to me. Can you say that? Say it with me. What happens to you matters to me. Now look at the person next to you and say it. What happens to you matters to me. Now if you and I can't say that with sincerity and act on it out of authentic love, then we have no idea what Christ had in mind when he prayed in John 17, verses 20 and 21. You know, I don't pray for these, Lord, alone, but for those who will hear their word, that's us, that they may all be one. Or what the Apostle Paul pictured when he wrote to the Corinthian church, and he said, but now there are many members, but one body. There should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Fact is, right relationships flourish when mutual care is maintained. That's the first thing that I want to talk about today, and that's Paul's exhortation today in this text. Look at verses 14 and 15, because that's where I want to begin. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. 
The responsibilities that Paul lists here in these two verses are so basic that they hardly warrant a full-blown message. Or do they? The fact is that although we may think that we understand them, the proof is always in the fruit of how things are happening, isn't it? It's never really, it's, it's never simply what we think about a passage that proves our understanding, but what we end up doing with the passage that proves our understanding. Are we personally fulfilling what these two verses say? Now you'll notice that I skipped verses 12 and 13. I'm going to revisit those in a couple of weeks. I wanted to really start with our responsibility toward each other as a whole, not your responsibility toward leaders. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable with that, starting with that. Paul says that in the family of God, in the church to which we are all connected, if right relationships are going to blossom and flourish, then there are some responsibilities that we need to maintain. And as we look through this passage, we're going to look at a lot of different responsibilities. The first responsibility in 12 and 13 is our responsibility toward leaders. The second one, our responsibility toward each other, which is today's text. Our attitudinal responsibility toward life is verses 16 and 18 through 18. And then finally, we're going to end up with our spiritual responsibility toward the truth. So that's the whole outline of the next four Messages. Well, let me suggest to you that verse 13, the second part of verse 13 here, is the actual hinge of the entire passage. Look at what it says Live in peace with one another. Paul's exhortation to live in peace with one another is both part of our responsibility toward our leaders because it makes their job easier and a whole lot more enjoyable and it's also our responsibility toward each other, which is in the next two verses. In fact, the command to live in peace with each other in verse 13 is the impetus for which Paul makes all of his following statements. Peace is the hinge on which right relationships in the church swing. I say that again. Peace is the hinge by which, on which, right relationships in the church swing, whether toward leaders or toward each other. Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews in verse 14 says it this way, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's that important. Peacemakers are identified by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as those who will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons of God in chapter 5, verse 9 of Matthew's Gospel. Peacemaking, not necessarily peacekeeping, is the characteristic activity of God and Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says it like this. If it is possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The implication here is that you've done everything in your power to do it, to make peace. But sometimes, you know, it's not received well, is it? Sometimes it's not your responsibility. The outcome is never your responsibility, actually. Your responsibility is to do everything in your power as far as it depends on you, Paul says in Romans. To cultivate it. And the question is, have we? Have you? Can you honestly say that you have done that, that you are a peacemaker? That's the criteria here. Only in light of seeking to live in peace with each other can we fulfill the next two verses, verses 14 and 15, which we're going to look at right now. It's only when we have peace as our goal that we can dare to care for each other. Is exhibiting mutual care for each other a daring activity? You bet it is. Because real care for each other sometimes means doing the, the hard thing, right? The thing we don't like, the thing we don't enjoy, but the thing that's necessary. Paul says the criteria for daring to care for each other means three things. It means, number one, mutually 
we must work out the bugs among us. Number two, we must weed out the sin within us. And number three, we need to will for the best for all of us. So that's, let's unpack those three things right now. First of all, in verse 14, work out the bugs among us. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. We urge you, brethren, Paul seriously exhorts all of us not only to take these things into consideration, but to actually do them. What follows are six commands, six imperatives in verse 14, six responsibilities that we are to fulfill for right relationships with each other. And they are addressed to everyone in the church at Thessalonica. And the implication is us as well. He's talking to the church body, everyone. In other words, what we're about to hear is everyone's responsibility. How do we work out the bugs? By doing these things. Number one, verse 14, restore the wayward. Restore the wayward. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. If there's one responsibility every one of us in this family would like to lose, that's it. You agree? We don't like confrontation. If you do like confrontation, let me confront you. <laughs> it's not a pleasant activity. I like to avoid it like the plague. I like people to like me. I don't want people to not like me. And to confront somebody, sometimes you have to do the hard thing and risk being not liked. We don't want to admonish each other, partially because we don't feel qualified. That's number one. But I think more than that, we don't want to put ourselves in a position to be misunderstood or rejected. But God says clearly that in the church, it is our responsibility, it's actually our obligation, according to this text, to warn and to caution a brother or sister who is off track. Now, the way we do that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? The word unruly here in this text literally is a military term which refers to a soldier who is out of step with the rest or out of line. It refers to someone who is causing the army to move in disarray. Paul says, seek to bring them back before more severe church discipline has to take place. Matthew 18, for example. We always need to remember, however, that any admonishment must be tempered with love and with a genuine concern for the other person's good. Our problem in this society is we have this, this gushy, sloppy sentimentality that refuses to call sin, sin. Don't we? We don't want to stir things up. I get that. But I'll tell you, God never tells us to allow a brother or a sister to get so far out of step that they fall off a cliff spiritually. And many, many churches have experienced that. That's not love. You know what that is? That's indifference. And we are called to love each other enough to warn each other of the danger. But sheesh, let's, let's always have the right motive in our hearts, huh? Galatians chapter 6, for example, verses 1 to 3, the classic verse on, the verses on this. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. What about James chapter 5, James 5, 19 and 20? My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If, if there's any motivation to do it, to care for one another, to confront one another, that's it. Now, I know people say, 
they yank out Matthew 7, 1 through 5. If you don't know what that is, I bet you can guess. Judge not, lest you be judged. And they yank that out to mean we are never to confront one another. But that's not what that says. Take the telephone pole out of your eye before you remove the toothpick of your brothers, right? He's not saying don't confront. He's just saying make sure your eye can see clearly and your heart feels correctly. Take that log out of your own eye before you can remove that speck that is in your brother or sister's eye. We're never told to assume the role of Jesus Christ as judge, are we? Ever. But we are commanded to seek to restore one another when we get off, when someone gets off track. And by the way, that means first going directly to the person involved, not the pastor, not the other people of the church, or not your BFF. And remember, as you go, remember these two things, at least. Consider God's grace in your life as you seek to restore someone else's. That's number one. Number two is never snuff out the candle of hope in the face of a sinner's shame. I got a verse for that one. Isaiah 42, 3. This is very Christ-like. Be sensitive. A bruised reed he will not break, it says. And a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. Now, if Jesus didn't do that, we should not do that. Consider God's grace in your life as you seek to restore someone else's. Never snuff out the candle of hope in the face of a sinner's shame. Right relationships blossom in the church when we fulfill our responsibility to restore the wayward. And the Holy Spirit inside of us is the one who will help us to do it in the right way and for the right reasons. Amen? Secondly, Paul commands us not only to restore the wayward but also to replenish the weak. Verse 14 again, encourage the faint-hearted. Again, it is a command for all of us to adopt. Are you an encouragement to those who are weak in the body of Christ? Whether emotionally or physically or spiritually? George Matthew Adams said, encouragement is like oxygen to the soul. Encouragement is oxygen to the soul. Good work can never be expected from a worker without encouragement. No one ever climbed to spiritual heights without it. No one ever lived without it. Back up just a few verses to verse 11 in 1 Thessalonians 5 and see what Paul prefaces this entire context with. Therefore, he says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. So I'm hoping that this message, this series, isn't going to feel like a slap in the face because this is the way I feel. It's like this is fine-tuning, okay? Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are also doing because I think a lot of that's going on around here. I really do. And we can always improve, can't we? Paul personally understood the importance of encouragement in his own life through the ministry of Barnabas, by the way, whose name means son of encouragement. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36, you find that. But as a faithful brother in Christ, Barnabas continually encouraged Paul in his ministry. And we all need a Barnabas, don't we? You got a Barnabas? We all need to be a Barnabas to someone, don't we? I could not have lasted as long as I have in the ministry if it wasn't for the faithful encouragement of all kinds of people. In fact, I received an amazing dose of it last Monday. If you were here last Sunday and you heard my message, I uh, used as an illustration, I made an offhand reference to a Coke bottle that I had been searching for for years which I recently found in an antique shop in Strong, but I left it there because I was unwilling to pay the price that they were asking. Well, early Monday morning, I walked into my office and there sitting on my desk to my utter surprise was that bottle. With a... <laughs> That's encouraging. 
That bottle with a note which read, quote, thank you for all you do, Pastor Russ, unquote. Now, I don't know how or who could have possibly accomplished that feat between the end of Sunday's message on Sunday, last Sunday, and early Monday morning when I walked into my office with no other detailed information than what I just gave you, but it blessed me immensely. And I had a rough week last week, a lot to do, but that propelled me, really, because it was encouraging. Whoever it was on that day, you were my Barnabas, okay? But, but be, a, be an encourager to people. I got to pay that one forward. <laughs> Paul says specifically that we are to encourage the faint-hearted. Literally, the term means little soul. You know somebody around you who is like a little soul? They're just feeling faint and weary and tired and exhausted spiritually. We need to encourage those people in our body who are struggling that way. The ones who are discouraged, the ones who are despondent, the ones who are disheartened and depressed, the ones who have gotten fearful and have maybe lost the will to live for God, people who have succumbed to the tediously repetitious, humdrum, pedestrian blahs of this life. Chuck Swindoll once identified the blahs of this life as one of the deadliest darts in the devil's quiver because once it strikes, it leaves us listless, careless, and disillusioned. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So think about it. Take a moment and think in your mind. Is there anyone you know that could use your encouragement right now? Someone in this body of believers that's experiencing fear or worry or a wilting spirit. What in the world are you waiting for? Get alongside of them and replenish their strength. Encourage them. Right relationships blossom in the church when it happens. You know why? Because encouragement is like a peanut butter sandwich. The more you spread it around, the better things stick together. <laughs> Restore the wayward, replenish the weak, and then reach out for the weary, it says in verse 14. Help the weak. Help the weak. The message renders it this way. Reach out for the exhausted, pulling them to their feet. Literally, the original word is made up of two words, which means to hold yourself against. Hold oneself against. Now, it sounds kind of, sounds kind of negative, but the idea is keeping oneself directly opposite another in order to prop them up and to sustain them and support them so they don't fall down. Theologian Leon Morris referred to it as, quote, holding on to someone. It is good for weak souls to know that there are others who are with them who will cleave to them in difficult moments and who will not forsake them. In the Bible, there are all kinds of numerous examples of these kinds of relationships. For example, David had Jonathan. Elijah had Elisha. Paul had Epaphroditus and Barnabas and Luke and Onesiphorus and Timothy. And, but the one that always gets me is Moses. Moses had Aaron and her. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus 17 for a moment. This picture is worth a thousand words. Exodus chapter 17 and beginning in verse 8. While I read this passage, I want you to do something for me. I want you to lift up your hands. You got to see this from where I'm standing right now. It's awesome. Okay, just keep them there. Keep them right there. While I read this text. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. 
And so Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out and fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Feeling a little heavy? (laughs) And then they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Now, I could have you stay that way until the end of the sermon (laughs) to make the point, but you can put them down now. You get a little picture of what we're talking about here? Now, imagine for a moment that Aaron and Hur had accosted Moses instead of shoring him up. Hey, Moses, you lazy. Why are you dropping your hands? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? There's people dying out there. Suppose they did that. Do you think some, you think the outcome would have been the same? No. They got alongside of him and they propped him up. And they held him up. And it's exactly the picture that Paul is talking about here to hold oneself against as a support. The late Joseph Parker once wrote, your shoulder is not to be the seat of ornament, the point of decoration. If, O oh man, thou hast a brawny shoulder, it belongs to thy weaker brother. I love that quote. I think of this beautiful picture that I see almost every Sunday now of the support Barbara and Eric are receiving right now. There are many others besides them who are buckling under a whole different kind of weight and burden. And they also need that same kind of encouraging care. At one time or another, we're all going to need that in the body of Christ. So do you know someone morally weak or spiritually exhausted today? But instead of pulling the rug out from under their feet, how about shoring them up to lighten their burden? In other words, when it comes to those who are weak, stick with them and stick by them. And then here finally in verse 14, refuse to whine. (laughs) Refuse to whine. Be patient with everyone. I often think of the simple statement I saw displayed in someone's home years ago. It's perfect. Framed were the simple but profound words, thou shalt not whine. (laughs) I think it should be the unspoken 11th commandment for the church. Because that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. The word patience literally means to suffer long. It means not giving way to a quick temper toward those who fail, but rather to be considerate of them. In other words, he's telling us to have a long fuse. Patience means, someone said, letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. Patience is the duty and the responsibility of the entire body of Christ, according to Paul. It means not blowing up when you are irritated at someone. You understand that? It means keeping a lid on it. It means giving others, even unbelievers, because it says all men in this text, time and space to change. Do you realize that? God gives us time and space to change. And it means being distinctly Christ-like. Nowhere is spiritual maturity more revealed than in our capacity to be patient with each other and with those outside the church. It's listed in Galatians chapter 5 as a fruit of the Spirit. Impatience then, by definition does not originate with God. Let me say that again. Impatience 
does not originate with God. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13 says, says this, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. You know what? God is not a whiner. He's a waiter. How much time and space has he given you to change? And me? How much do you think we should give to others? You say, I'm not that strong. It's my personality to jump right in. My nature. I can't do it. I'm not that patient. I can't do it. But in reality, what you're actually saying is, I won't do it. The fact is, you're right. No one is that strong. And by the way, if we're in Christ, we're supposed to have a new nature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. Amen? So don't say, I can't do it. He can. You just need to submit yourself to him. Right relationships blossom when we begin to take care of each other. Restore the wayward, replenish the weak, reach out for the wary, refuse to whine. In short, help each other to work out the bugs. In addition to working out the bugs, we must also weed out the sin within us. Verse 15. See that no one repays evil, another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. I have a far side comic on my office wall that I'm going to basically show you right now. It says, you ever get that urge, Frank? It begins with looking down from 50 stories up, thinking about the meaninglessness of life, listening to the dark voices deep inside of you, and you think, should I, should I, should I push somebody off? Paul says, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but seek after that which is good for one another. So, number one, refuse to retaliate when wronged. Continually see to it and make sure that no one repays another for evil for evil. The grammar here is very specific. It conveys the idea that we're all responsible for helping each other in this. Retaliation is such a pull in our lives, doesn't it? that it's going to take the care of the entire body to make sure that not one of us resorts to it. Not only are we to refuse to retaliate, but we are to see to it that no one else in the body does either. We're to remind each other of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 41. You've heard that it was said, Jesus said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If it wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. You see, but this is difficult, isn't it? I mean, are we to just post a sign on our chest that says, Doormat, please wipe your feet here. Is that what Jesus taught? I mean, we all wrestled with the strong arm of resentment, don't we? And sometimes it just feels good to get our licks in, doesn't it? It really, really it does. We're all tempted to do it once in a while, aren't we? I can relate to the woman I read about who recently, who, who was in a fancy luxury car and she waited patiently in a crowded parking lot for a place to open up. And she drove up and down between the rows until finally she saw a man with a load of packages heading for his car. So she followed him slowly and parked behind him waiting while he opened his trunk and loaded it. And finally he got into his car and he backed out of the parking place. And just as she was preparing to pull forward into that space, 
a young man in a little sports car came from the opposite direction, turned in front of her, zipped into that space, got out of his car, and started walking off. The woman was livid. And she shouted from her big luxury car, hey, young whippersnapper, I was waiting for that parking place. And the teenager responded, sorry, lady, but that's how it is when you're young and quick. So she instantly put her car in gear, floored it, and crashed into the sports car, backed up, crashed into it again, crushing its right rear fender. Now it was the young man's turn to jump up and down and, and shouts, what are you doing? And the woman in the luxury car calmly responded, well, son, that's how it is when you're old and rich. <laughs> now let's admit it. There's something about that response that really feels good. <laughs> Wouldn't you like to do that? Our culture applauds that kind of mentality. That's why it's dangerous, I say it's dangerous, to frequent too many action-adventure movies that play out the vengeance thing until the end. When By the end of the movie, we are actually rejoicing when the good guy gets even. Find yourself there? even if his getting even involves sinful retaliation. We always have to check ourselves in that, don't we? Christ said, don't get even. Leave it to God. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. That's Proverbs 24, 29, by the way. We've all struggled with that one. And maybe some of you are struggling with it right now. You resent the fact that someone close to you has fired a devastating shot which has left this gaping hole in your chest and you're torn between wanting to cry and wanting to fight. But Christ gave us the model in 1 Peter chapter 2. You can look that one up this week and meditate on it. But he didn't retaliate and he didn't get even. Paul gave us the reminder, refuse to retaliate when wronged. Again, in Romans chapter 12, we see a perfect example of what Paul's talking about again. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, he says, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But not only are we to refuse to retaliate when wrong, but beyond that, and this is a real fine-tuned issue right here, is that we're to refrain from rejoicing when the object of our anger is wronged. That's a whole different deal, isn't it? Obadiah 12 says this, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Proverbs 24, verses 17 and 18 says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles or the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. Instead, Paul commands us to seek for the good of everyone even our enemies. That's what it says here in verse 15. Seek after that which is good for one another. It would be great if it was just there, right? It relegated it just to the church people, just to Christians. But no, he continues and says, and for all people, everyone. If we're going to foster right relationships in the church and outside the church, then we need to work out the bugs, weed out the sin within us, and lastly, will for the best for all of us. And this is very simple. It doesn't require any explanation. Seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Always, at all times, every time. Be in hot pursuit of that which is good, not only for each other, but for all men. This is tough stuff. But it's a universal rule. 
according to Paul. So I want to wrap this up this way. Before you leave here today, I invite you to take a moment to make this more personal. I'm going to have Caleb switch the slide. And I want you to look up here. And insert into this verse your name, where it's appropriate, and the name of anyone who has offended you or done you wrong. See to it. See that, and you put your name in, does not repay, put the other person's name in, with evil for evil. But always seek after that which is good for the other person, whoever that is, and for all men. Would you do that? Just in your own heart. And I'll end with Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for making it so crystal clear about what our responsibilities are in the church toward one another. I pray, Father, for the next few weeks as we unpack the rest of these verses, to make them real in our lives so that we may apply them and we may reap the fruit of it, Lord God, not just within our own body and our own families, but within the community as well. May people who see us interact with each other and interact with others out in the marketplace, marvel at the attitude and at the spirit with which we communicate. And may they walk away saying, I don't know what's different about that person, but I know I'd like to have a piece of that. And may that be an open door and opportunity for us to share the love of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of Jesus with them. I ask it, Lord God, for the sake of your kingdom, because that's what you've called us to do. And I ask it in Jesus' name as you go before us. Amen.